Welcome to the Operation Crest podcast. I'm Eli. And I'm Rohan. We are the co-hosts of today's episode. Operation Crest is an effort from the 957 Project to empower high school students like us to preserve memories of America's veterans and to share the stories of courage, resilient service, and teamwork. Each of these interviews will be donated to the Library of Congress to be preserved for future generations. And you can hear other episodes of this show whenever you get your podcasts. Be sure to stick around at the end of the episode to hear us reflect on what we learned during the following conversation. Learn more at www.operationcrest.org. And now, let's begin the show. Today, we are interviewing Mr. Alan Platt. Mr. Alan Platt is a former naval aviator and retired senior CIA officer in the Directorate of Operations with a distinguished career in the clandestine service and proven record of integrity, achievement, and excellence. During his 25 years of service with the CIA, he served in six field assignments, four as chief of station. He has been involved in several premier intelligence operations that contributed to national collection objectives and covert action goals, many in high-risk environments. Headquarters assignments have included executive assistant to the DDCI, the deputy chief, special activities division, where he pi- pioneered the agency's UAV program and Deputy and Acting Chief, Counterintelligence Center, where he helped identify and bring to justice a CIA spy. Allen's last assignment in the IC was Associate Deputy Director for Operations, NSA. Allen has been recognized with numerous awards for his contributions to U.S. intelligence, including a Vice Presidential Commendation, CIA's Donovan Award, NSA's Exceptional Civilian Service Award, the Intelligence Medal of Merit, the Balkan Service Award, and upon retirement, the CIA's Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal. Prior to his CIA career, Mr. Platt was a naval aviator for six years. He received a BS degree in aeronautical engineering from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1969 and an MS degree in aeronautical systems engineering from the University of West Florida in 1970, simultaneously completing aviation training and receiving his wings. He is married to Linda Buckley Platt, and they have two children and three grandchildren. Alan and Linda live in Middleburg, Virginia, and are active in, a, in many community activities. Mr. Platt, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here and, and part of your project. I really look forward to it. So I guess we'll just start off uh, the episode by asking if you could tell us a little bit about your naval aviation career and how you got into it. All right. Um, I suppose it... The easiest way to describe it is I, from as long ago as I can remember as a child, I wanted to be a pilot. And I read everything I could. And the more I read, the more I wanted to be a Navy pilot. And uh, so I, I just set my sights on that. And uh, and I figured if you were going to go in into the service and you wanted to uh, to go into a specialization like flying, the best way to start that off was with one of the academies. And so I went, I applied for and got into the Naval Academy. And that's all, that's how that all started. Um, with Rohan reading all the stuff you did, you earned your wings, you earned all these uh, intelligence medals and everything. What motivated you to do all that? Um, well, when I was uh, still in the Navy, um, I looked at the possibilities of doing something different. I mean, I love flying. And I went into, when I got out of the Navy, I went into a sort of withdrawal because I wasn't flying anymore. And, uh, but I still wanted to, to do something different in service. Uh, my wife and I were living in Okinawa at the time. And uh, we got to meet a, um, a State Department uh, official and we became good friends. My wife and I lived out on the economy. We lived off the base, and we really enjoyed that. We learned a little bit of Japanese. Um, so that kind of lifestyle, being off the base, being on your own, uh, was really attractive to us, and learning an, a, a language. Um, in talking to the State Department official, he, I said I wanted to do something like what he was doing. And he got to know me pretty well, and he said, you're probably better suited um, to working at the CIA um, than working at the State Department. So I basically, I just wrote a letter off. And 
in those days, this is in the um, mid 70s, in those days, there wasn't a whole lot of information out there and the recruiting process was very, um, very hidden. So mm -hmm. you, you really didn't know what you were doing when you wrote a letter off and said, I'd like to apply. Yeah. That's how it all started. And, uh, you know, we get down to one of your, um, uh, one of your values there, service. And I think that was the motivating factor for me. I wanted to continue to serve, but I just wanted to serve in a different way. And uh, it, it was perfect for me. I wouldn't have changed anything different. Uh, have you ever thought of being, like has the thought ever crossed your mind of becoming like a commercial airlines pilot because you love flying so much? Or were you set on becoming a naval aviator? Yeah, um, a lot of uh, my colleagues did go into the airlines. Uh, I looked at it. Um, I had my private license. I had a commercial license. Um, but in those days, when I was getting out of the Navy, the, the airplanes, the airlines were structured a little bit differently. They had, um, they had two pilots, a pilot and a co-pilot, captain and a, a co-captain. And then um, they had a flight engineer, and he would be the one that would monitor all the, the dials and the circuit breakers and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but that flight engineer was a pilot, so basically it was a third pilot. And the waiting list to move up to be co-pilot was about five to eight years. And I didn't want... I didn't want to be sitting behind two pilots for that long a period. So that was unattractive to me. And that's why I, I never really went into airlines. I looked at it and then just walked away from it. Uh, so when you were in the CIA, what kind of achievements did you accomplish? And like, like what were some of the operations that you did on CIA? Or, or are you not allowed to tell us? No, we, I can talk about some that have been come but you know, people have to understand what the the agency does. Um, it it collects, and the part of the agency that I was in, the clandestine service, um, we do human intelligence. So you collect intelligence secrets, if you want, from other people, other government officials, other uh, military people, that sort of thing. Wow, that's the that's the part of the 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 overall intelligence structure. At NSA, for example, they do signals intelligence. They, they capture signals, and now it's electrons on, um, on the wires. But in, in those days, it was a signal going from a receiver, uh, from a transmitter to a receiver. And they'd capture that, and um, that was their intelligence, signals intelligence. So you have all the different, different kinds of things. So, um, different kinds of ways of, of collecting intelligence. So I was involved in the human collection of intelligence. Um, and the type of operations that you do, most of us work out of embassies. So you would have an embassy job, and then you'd have your real job. So during the day, you're, um, you're working in the embassy as an embassy official. Mm -hmm. um, some way or other, then you would also participate in all of the embassy functions, receptions, dinners, and all that sort of thing. And then after that, then you'd have to go out and do your real business at, at night, meeting, uh, meeting assets, we call them assets. Um, we would meet assets that uh, would then provide us information. And we do that all clandestinely. We'd have to, that's what we were protecting. Uh, not the fact that I was there, but the fact that we were meeting people uh, and collecting intelligence from them. And they knew what they were doing. They knew that I was agency, and they also knew that if they got caught doing what, uh, what they were doing, they would be in big trouble. So were you working with these people, or were you kind of interrogating them? No, no, working with them. They oh, were... Really? That's yeah, cool. they, were, they, they would willingly provide information to us. And they would be... Um... Yeah, they'd be somebody else's. It, it's like if reverse that, and we have somebody here uh, working in the Pentagon, and the the Russians would um, recruit him. If the Russians recruited him, then the Russians would pick up information from this person who was working in the Pentagon, and he would give them 
uh, Department of Defense information, um, military information too. But um, so that person would be working willingly with the Russians. And when they're caught, they get into a lot of trouble here. And, and uh, they're, they're put in jail. You know, they're tried um, on the Espionage Act, against the Espionage Act. So, um, and so reverse it back, and I was overseas, and as an intelligence officer, I'm trying to find people that are willing to cooperate with me. And there are different motivations why people want to do this, knowing that uh, they could get in trouble. One of the one of the the, the most serious things that a, a an agency officer does is the protection. And there's a phrase: protect sources and methods. Okay, so the way we go about our business, we protect that, mm-hmm. and then the source is the person. We protect that person, so we take that very seriously. Um, because we know that person has agreed to a relationship with us and he's in harm's way and he can get into a lot of trouble if he gets caught. So it's up to me to make sure he doesn't get caught. Could you tell us a little bit about um, the UAV program? Sure. Um, This goes back to mid-90s. And I, um, I came in from the field. I went to headquarters and I was assigned to Special Activities Division. And that division is um, has all of the covert action infrastructure, the planes, the boats, and, and everybody that works there. Um, and they were, they were starting a, a project, which I inherited. Uh, so it was, we, I partnered with a, uh, another fellow who was in a different, um, directorate. He was in the science and technology directorate, and it just so happened we both had the same last name, so they called us the Platt Twins. And um, actually, he was my cousin. No, not really. But uh, so we we did the whole thing. We developed. He worked at the uh, at the technical aspect of of putting everything together correctly, and I was working on the operational aspects. How do you how do you manage this? How do you put it in the field and and deploy it and then operate it in the field? So it was a new program. Um, at the same time, the military was was doing their program uh, with the Predator UAV. Ours was called the Nat 750. It looked just like a Predator, but it was about three inches shorter. You know, you couldn't um, you couldn't tell the difference between the two by just looking at them. So our program was very small. Our mission was very straightforward, um, and we articulated that wherever we could, and it was in and out of one country one time undetected, because these things were new in those days. And and as a um, as a uh, a, a forward uh, program to go in, and then the military would follow behind us. So because we could, and and we one of our goals was to be able to within 24 hours so we get the we get the call we need you to go to country X and deploy over country and fly over country Y we would do that within 24 hours and our whole our whole element fit into one uh, c141 okay and we just go we were that we were that small and and um, and thin so we were able to do that very quickly very efficiently that's the difference between the agency and the and the military. Not right or wrong. It's just a different way of operating. So my team would have been about ten to twelve people. The uh, military team would be hundreds of people. Right? So we just operate a little bit differently. So we could be that forward breach quickly, mm-hmm. and then and then the military would backfill, would come in behind us and set up a more permanent operation. Were you, was it manning like a drone or was it? It was a drone, yeah. Unmanned area vehicles, what it stands for. And call them drones now, yeah, I suppose. And you would fly them over to get extra information without being undetected? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, and it was all uh, photographic information. So, in those days. But, you know, you can build these things to do other things now. And, And so, but 
our our goal and we stuck to it because this was new and we wanted to make sure that we were successful. So we didn't um, get involved or we wouldn't allow ourselves to uh, fall victim to what we call mission creep. So you, you build this thing and you have an idea in mind and then somebody comes along, well, wouldn't it be nice to do this? You go, okay, and so you start working on that plus all the other. And all of a sudden you've got about four or five different missions you're putting it all together and it's not working properly because you never designed it to do that. So you have to have the discipline to go ahead and stay, stick on your mission. Once you can prove that you're operational and you get all of that down and you feel comfortable with it, then you start doing other things. But you do it in a methodical way so you don't interrupt the, 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 the real mission that you're trying to accomplish. So, um, you know, we had to be very careful because people wanted to do a lot of things with this since it was a, a new platform, a new way of doing business. And now, look where we are now. They, you know, they collect all kinds of information. Um, they use them to uh, go over country and then fire fire missiles. So they use the, uh, the Yemenis uh, uh, the are using uh, drones now as, as um, you know, type of suicide, a, a cruise missile, basically. Short-range cruise missile. And what's it like seeing videos of that while knowing that you yourself manned one of those? <laughs> no, you don't. Don't man it. I oh, manage. I help. It. Yeah, I help manage the program. We had other people oh. flying them. I didn't do any of the uh, the flying. I didn't turn a screwdriver. Uh, I I managed the the project um, from headquarters. And I go out to deployments and, and uh, um, you know, work with the men there, but men and women. Um, but no, I didn't, I didn't actually hands-on fly them or anything like that. I was, I guess you would call um, a type of project manager. Make sure, make sure the, the whole project stayed on schedule yeah. and on budget. I mean, that's the important thing. Making sure everything was in order. Yeah, and got the right people. Do the work. Mm -hmm. so. Can you tell us a little bit about how you caught the CIA spy? Because I was reading through your bio and I thought that was really interesting that you helped catch a spy. Well, so I, in in the United States, counterespionage is uh, the realm of the FBI. So it was, uh, it was the FBI was they were doing all of the, the street work. It happened to be a CIA officer um, that was the spy. And because of that, the CIA had to cooperate with the FBI. So I was one of the, I guess I was the, um, there were three senior people uh, in the agency at the time uh, reporting to the director and the deputy director on all of the activities. And it would be the FBI and, and the, the CIA team that would be doing all of that. So we would support the FBI in any way they, um, they wanted it. Uh, wanted us to, um, and it, it was a good team, obviously, because we were successful. Uh, you go back uh, before um, Nicholson, um, there was the Ames case, in which he did a lot of damage, and he went undetected for um, a long time, and with obvious signals that something should have been looked at, um, but because of the the problems with the Ames case or, or being able to identify and, and bring to justice uh, Ames, um, we learned a lot of lessons. The agency and the FBI learned a lot of lessons and we were able to, um, uh, to then apply those lessons, those learned lessons to a more efficient. So from the time that um, this guy came under suspicion and the time he was arrested, it was just a little over a year. So we were able to um, minimize any kind of damage. What do you mean by damage? Um, giving up intelligence, giving them our intelligence. Okay, and it can be anything from uh, actual sources and methods to plans, intentions, um, to uh, different, um, for example, requirements. What does the government? Because we support policymakers. We're supporting State Department, supporting the president. And so they have requirements. They want this information, this information, this information. Well, those requirements 
are important if somebody, they're all classified and those requirements are important for the opposition to know because if they know that we're gonna to try to collect A, B, or C, they're gonna protect A, B, and C more closely and prevent us from, uh, from doing it. So there's a lot of things that seem mundane and not really important that become very, very important in the business. After you caught him, what did, what did you do? What was like the next move after you caught Do you just send him back to his country or? No, he was ours. He was a CIA officer. Oh. Uh, okay. So he was a CIA officer working for the Russians. Oh. Uh, okay. And so, and the FBI caught him. They did the arrest. Uh, and then the Justice Department took over uh, for, for the trial. I don't think, if I recall correctly, I don't think he ever went to trial. Uh, they made a they they made a deal. He's in prison. He'll be in prison for the rest of his life. Wow. Uh, but uh, what they what they like to do in most of these cases is is make a a deal with the uh, with the spy with the officer former officer uh, life imprisonment for uh, for deb being debriefed for telling them what he did how he did it who who worked with him that sort of. Thing. Um, in exchange, he gets life imprisonment instead of death because espionage is punishable by death. Do you know how that team caught him? Uh, yeah. Are you allowed to tell us? No. <laughs> it's always a good stuff. Uh, it's, yeah, it was a, a good try. So <laughs> um, Maybe someday it'll come out. I don't know. I don't know. But right now I don't feel like um, you know, I can, can say very much, even though it was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, in your bio, it said you had four chief station assignments. What does that mean exactly? Uh, chief station is um, our offices overseas are called stations. Okay. And the chief of station is the boss, like oh. the skipper of a ship. Oh. Okay. So you're responsible for the, uh, the well-being of all your people. And every station is different in size. Um, has a different, the mission is the same, clandestine collection of intelligence, okay? And, um, but everyone is different in, um, in that it's collecting different intelligence, um, um, possibly, and maybe collect, trying to collect the same. Uh, you're handling assets, you're meeting with these assets, you're giving you information. All that's about the same. Your tradecraft, uh, the way you go about your business in that country, that would be different. It's fundamentally, it can be all the same, but in each country, uh, it's, uh, it's, care it's carefully done based on the, the threat of that country. So some countries you can be, um, and you don't want to be lackadaisical, but you can, uh, you can be less careful. In other countries, you have to be more careful. Yeah. And in some countries, you just can't operate. Oh. Safely. Do you have any challenges or responsibilities you have to face while going on those assignments? Anything that sticks out? Well, um, I mean, there's always always challenges. Um, you know, learning a language and being fluent in a, a language, something as simple as that. Um, preparing your family to go overseas. Uh, yeah. There's something, you know, very personal about that. Uh, learning as much as you can about the country you're going to before you go there, so you uh, you can understand their their you can understand their customs, um, understand the people, the way they act, the way they think, uh, so you're you're better informed once you get there. So you've got all of those things that are necessary um, to to prepare for your your assignment. Some are professional, some are personal. Um, out of all the assignments that you've done, do you have any that are like really memorable or any events that happen that just that you learned from or memorable experiences? Yeah, um, I guess the the nicest place uh, we lived and and did really good work was in Morocco. We were uh, I was assigned to uh, Rabat for three years. And we really enjoyed that. Um, what is that, Rabat? Rabat is the capital. Uh, okay. Embassies, embassies, are, embassies are in capitals, 
And then, then you have consulates, which are uh, subordinate to the embassies. And those consulates will be in um, other cities. Okay. So like an embassy here, like say the, the Russian embassy here in, in Washington has consulate, consulates in San Francisco and New York. Okay, because there's large um, Russian populations. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, so Morocco was the nicest place we lived. And uh, it, it was really beautiful. Um, we had a good relationship working with the Moroccans. Um, and we did, we did some really spectacular things during the, uh, it was during the Gulf War. And so we, you know, we did a lot of things with the Moroccans. Um, that was very rewarding. I think professionally, and, and my wife doesn't like hearing this, professionally, uh, my favorite assignment was Sudan, all right? And we were there between 1984 and 1986, and the, co the country was in turmoil. Uh, it was Namiri, who was the president, uh, was in power for one year, then he got overthrown. And the, the good guys were removed, and then the bad guys came in. And so that last year that we were in uh, Sudan uh, was very, very challenging um, because you had to really watch what you were doing. Like, remember what I said, some countries you can be, yeah. uh, you, you have to be on your game. Uh, and that's the way it was because um, the, the government became unfriendly to the United States. There were riots, there were all kinds of things in the streets like that that were, um, uh, that were 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 could be dangerous. Let me yeah. put it that way. They could turn south very quickly. Um, and then um, what happened one night is uh, uh, the State Department communicator uh, left the embassy, and uh, the terrorists followed him and shot him in the head on his way home. Wow. And so um, he survived. Uh, he was paralyzed on his right side for the rest of his life. But uh, when something like that happens, you, everybody has to, uh, you, you gotta circle the wagons and you've gotta work really hard and, and all of that. They, they evacuated all of the uh, families and non-essential personnel. And after that happened, and that happened within 48 hours. And after that, there were only 50, 50 of us in, in country. Uh, working out of the embassy. How many were there when you oh, oh, and counting families, there were a couple hundred, wow. so maybe three hundred, something like that. And um, and so it became really challenging. And we had to uh, mention tradecraft before, and we had to really, really change our tradecraft uh, in a way that our men and women were protected. Because they still had to go do their job. Mm -hmm. They still had to go out in the street and meet with assets clandestinely. Uh, but in doing that, they were putting themselves in harm's way. So that was, that was um, uh, professionally, that was really challenging, but was also exciting. While, while Namiri was still in power, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Falashas. No, okay. no. They're Ethiopian Jews. Um, they, they have several, the lost tribe, there's a lot of names. And they were in, uh, they were refugees from Ethiopia in Sudan, along with tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of other Ethiopian refugees. And um, uh, the, the Israelis have a, um, a, a philosophy of right to return, okay? And so they determined while we were there, that the Falashas had a right to return to Israel. And so we cooperated. They, they ran a couple of operations and they got uh, as many of them out as they, they could, but there were 1,200 remaining uh, and we were, we were asked to get the rest out. So uh, we, we did an operation, we went into the desert and uh, I had one other officer and a communicator and then working with the military. Again, we were there and then we were backfilled by the military. Yeah. And um, uh, they, came, they came in, we got them all out, and the rest is history. And it turned out, they, they thought, we thought there were going to be about uh, 1,200 of them, turned out to be about 900. The, the really challenging thing was 
Um, yeah, yeah, you can't imagine a refugee camp in the middle of the desert. Oh, at the at, at at you know to the to the east of Sudan, and there's several hundred thousand refugees there, and then in this one little area, you've got twelve hundred Colossians, and so the problem was the the tactical problem was how do you get these twelve hundred people out without the 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 four hundred and fifty thousand other people noticing and and go on a you know a stampede to, to get out also so that was the challenge most that was the biggest challenge for us at that point in time was getting them out quietly and secretly without allowing the other people to know about it. how'd you guys do that very carefully <laughs> now we had we had uh, uh, an Ethiopian um, who um, that who could speak the, the specific language that the, the Falashas have. And so he would go into the camp, refugee camp. He talked to them and, and, and said, okay, on this night, um, we're going to come and get you. And so what we did is we, you know, we made sure that it was in the middle of the night. We made sure that they were, uh, everybody else, the camp was quiet. Everybody else was asleep and everything. And we, um, Basically snuck them out one of the uh, one of the fences, mm -hmm. and we marched. We couldn't bring the buses in. Um, we didn't feel safe to bring them in any closer than five miles, um, because you know, in the I don't know if you've ever been in a desert, but you can see light for forever. Oh, yeah. And and so we didn't want to get any closer than five miles. So we hiked them across the desert to the buses. Then from, with the buses, we took them to the airport. And we waited there for the, the the military planes to land, just to get all those people in. Yeah, yeah. So I think if you uh, there's there um, there's an Operation Moses that was run by the Israelis. Um, there's a, a, an operation. Uh, our operation, somebody named it Operation Joshua. So you can go online and and look that up. That's why I feel okay to talk about it because it's there's a lot of information this is a um this is a podcast that seeks stories of courage resilience service and teamwork do you have any stories that relate to those themes that you would like to share yeah um well first of all courage take courage um and you have to define you have to define these words because courage to you may be different than what courage is to me mm -hmm. And for me, courage is not necessarily bravery. Bravery is easy to see. Uh, those firemen and policemen running into the towers at 9-11, that was bravery, right? Uh, courage is a little bit more, more subtle to me anyway. It's, it's doing, uh, Wakefield, for example. Uh, you all are interviewed, they look at your resumes, they, they, um, uh, you come recommended and everything. So that's all part of a vetting process. So they assume that you know the difference between right and wrong when you're selected. Mm -hmm. And they assume because you know the difference, you, you will act on the right and not the wrong. So that's all part of the, uh, the equation. The, the challenge is um, when you're in a situation, um, the right versus right situation or either, either course is the right course, but which is the better right? That's mm -hmm. a challenge, okay? And that takes real courage to, to pick the course um, and, and under, make that decision. You can't be caught by the fear of making the wrong decision. You have to take a choice. And, and that takes courage. Uh, it takes courage to um, uh, speak truth to power. To tell your bosses what you're doing is not right, or we can do it a better way, or whatever. And if you do that, you have to accept the the uh, um, the consequences um, because you can get in trouble. Uh, and the other thing that I always tell people when they when they speak truth to power, make sure you have a what you're complaining about or what you're suggesting. Make sure you have that suggestion you can talk about. I don't like your plan, boss. Here's a plan I think that's better. 
and why. And you do it in a um, uh, you, you do it in a gentlemanly fashion. You don't do it yelling and screaming and pounding on the desk or anything like yeah. that. Um, so th that takes real courage. Okay, uh, the UAV. It took okay. real courage to do that program because it was new. And anything that you do that's new is a challenge, uh, but it also um, can come back to haunt you from a career perspective because what if it didn't, didn't work? You've wasted, not wasted, but you've spent um, two years trying to develop a program uh, that fell on its face. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's two years out of your career that you really don't have a lot to show for. Okay, so that takes courage to, uh, to recruit people and keep them in and keep them interested, keep them motivated that this thing is going to fly. We're going to be able to show that we can collect intelligence off of this platform. So they're all the different ways of, of uh, uh, demonstrating courage. And, and I've had experiences in all of those areas, um, you know, where I've, uh, I've had the, the opportunity, uh, the, I was in a position where I had to speak truth and um, all but one time, um, I won the argument. And uh, the one time, I paid for it. You know, I, you know, I, they weren't happy with, with me talking to them and coming up with another, um, another way to do something. But by and large, uh, if, you, uh, if you have a good idea and your boss is a, um, a good enough boss, then they'll, then they'll probably listen to you. They may not agree with you and just say, thank you very much, and you don't get in trouble. But sometimes you get a boss who's a little cranky, and, uh, and then you pay for it. <laughs> yeah. But you have to have the courage to do it anyway. So. Big thing. And, the, and, and then, you know, in terms of courage and bravery, uh, all of my men and women in, in Khartoum, Sudan, uh, after the assassination attempt, uh, they showed a tremendous amount of, of courage, bravery, uh, by continuing to go out on the street uh, in a very hostile environment. Uh, I was also sent to Somalia, uh, Mogadishu, after the Black Hawk got shot down. And so that was also a demonstration of, of courage and bravery uh, because my people, uh, my men and women, they would go out and uh, collect in, intelligence on a regular basis in a very hostile and dangerous environment. So I've, I've seen examples of all of that. Same thing in, in my flying um, career, where you, you've got crews that go up knowing that there's an enemy out there, knowing that you've got bad weather, uh, the flying conditions are gonna be really bad. Um, the flying conditions are gonna be even worse when you come back and you have to land. So that takes um, you know, courage to be able to do that and and do it with confidence, um, you know. So there are there are plenty of of uh, occasions in my career. I think the for me the two most um, demonstrable examples of courage and bravery are at um, the the cemetery, the National Cemetery in in the Normandy. Okay. And if, if you've not been there, I recommend it. It's very moving. All those men that came across on D-Day um, and all their graves, you stand there. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of it, but it's uh, perfect grass. And all the, the, the headstones are simple marble crosses or stars of David. They're perfectly aligned this way, this way, and diagonal. Uh, and you, you stand there and you see all of these um, uh, grave sites and you think you know, the, the, the bravery of those men that were coming ashore um, and what they sacrificed uh, yeah. to get there. Another, uh, another um, example would be at, at the CIA, they've got a, uh, a memorable memorial wall uh, where they have stars etched into a big marble um, slate and each star is um, dedicated to someone who's uh, lost their life in the service while they were in the CIA. Um, there are 140 stars on that wall and the, the, 
all but 37 of them, you have the names and the date that they perished. But there are 37 stars up there with no names. Now, those men and women are, are the bravest of the brave because they, no one will ever know that they sacrificed for the country. No one will ever know. So that takes a special kind of person. So what advice would you give young people listening to this interview? Um, well, one of your one of your values is service. So I would um, I would advise people to seriously consider uh, some degree of service. Uh, I've always believe that um, at some point in, in, a, in a person's young life, they should be, I'd even require it, two years of service, one year of service in some kind of um, project. Now, not everybody's suited for the military. You could go into the military. Some people would, um, uh, you know, do something in, in the inner city. Um, they have a... a a, uh, a program here in Middleburg called Place to Be, where they take kids with um, physical and psychological challenges, and they they make them feel confident and better um, through music therapy. Um, there's a another office called Seven Lows, and you donate uh, food, and it's given out to uh, needy families in the in the town. So. Those kinds of services. You can do everything from community service on up to working in the military or some other organization. And I think that would serve the country really well because you get a different perspective on life when you're helping others. So that would that would be one thing. Uh, the other thing that I would I tell um, tell your your generation is that uh, what you do early on will impact on what you want to do later, okay? And you've heard all of the horror stories, and I'm sure you're counseled on them. Be careful what you do on social media. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because it can come back to haunt you. So, for example, if, if you've done something really stupid on social media, and then you go for a job in the FBI uh, or the CIA, they're going to find it. And they're going to take a look at that and just say, do we really want somebody like that here? Even though it happened when you were younger and immature and not as thoughtful as you could be, um, it still could come back to, to burn you. And you, wouldn't, you won't be able to achieve your goals. Um, the, the other thing that I always tell folks, younger folks, is, um, you know, I'm just as guilty now, is get off your devices. All right. And uh, for instance, you have a choice when you pick up that phone, you can either call or text. What do you do 99% of the time? Text. Yeah. Uh, why not hit a different button and call your friend, you know, and actually have a conversation? Um, and like I said, I'm just as guilty now because it's so darn convenient to just text. But what that does, it makes that communication more uh, impersonal. And that takes on a different character on that conversation rather than having a, a chat like we are here face to face. Um, yeah. You know, it, and that's one of the things with Mr. Finler. He asked me the, the last time because you were having technical difficulties. Do you want to do this remotely or do you want to do it in person? I, without, without hesitating, I said, I want to do it in person. Yeah. So, and I think it's, uh, there's, there's a lot more value in doing something. So those are the kinds of things, but uh, you know we're not going to reverse technology. Uh, none of that's going to go away. But just just realize, I think it's important for people to realize that um, these things do impact uh, on you. And the other interesting thing, I just discovered a, an article that I had read years ago, and it was um, it was about revolution. There are three. This according to this author, there are three great revolutions. Mm -hmm. Okay, and man and the history of man. One was the printing press. The other was the steam uh, steam engine, and the next one was the technology revolution. Okay, 
And what he was doing, he was taking history lessons in the first two revolutions and then comparing them to something. And the one point that he made was that when something was invented, like the printing press, it didn't change anything for over 100 years. Nobody knew the impact of that. So you really didn't understand how that was going to change everyone's life by, by being able to print something on a piece of paper and the mass communications in those days, okay? And monks in abbeys uh, still wrote Bibles by hand. You know, it didn't change their lives at all. So uh, fast forward to today, and the same thing happened with us, he mentioned. People didn't realize the impact, uh, what was gonna happen to economies, that uh, community economies were gonna turn into national economies, and then national economies were gonna turn into international economies. And all those things connect. All those things connected, and that all had an impact on on the way you do business. Mm -hmm. And that didn't happen. That took you know a century to really um, evolve and understand. Same thing with the IT revolution. We're in the middle of it, and we don't understand the full impact of where it's going or where it's taking us. Yeah, man. So um, so keep that in mind. Um, what else? What other advice? Oh. I don't know. All the advice I've given my my two kids, they haven't they haven't taken it, so I'm <laughs> I'm not good at this. But no, I think they're the most important thing. Seriously, is uh, you know trying to um, trying to look ahead, and that's hard to do as a young person because you're living in the now, and I understand that. I you know, I was there at one point, but looking at the future, where do I want to go? What what do I have to do? Uh, to keep those goals in mind. Uh, and uh, if I want to be a, uh, an engineer, I need to learn math now. I need to understand the sciences in order to provide that groundwork for my future endeavor. And so, um, you know, you've got to take a look at things like that and, and keep them all in perspective. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's really, really easy. Uh, my example in wanting to fly. You know, I, as a, as a young boy, I, for some reason, I wanted to fly. So I read every book that I could find. Um, I talked to everybody they had an opportunity to talk to that was involved in any way in the aviation industry. And I just kept doing more and more and more reading. And once I made up my mind that I wanted to go to the Naval Academy, I read as many books as I could find on the Naval Academy and what life there as a midshipman was like and what, a successful completion of the Naval Academy, what that meant when I got into the Navy. So all those things are, are steps that you have to take, but you need the preparation here. So I knew I was going to get an engineering degree at the Naval Academy. So in high school, I studied and studied and studied math. I made sure I understood all the concepts, uh, understood everything there was to do uh, about at my level, so I'd be prepared for the next. Is there anything else you would like to share before we complete the interview? No, I think we've covered a lot. I think we've yeah. covered a lot. Service is important. Resilient. We haven't talked about resiliency. And I think the important thing for me, the important thing um, to remember there, and there are different definitions, strength, flexibility, perseverance. Uh, but one of the things that I would tell um, my officers was that um, for resiliency, uh, you know, you're going to get knocked down. You're going to make a mistake, right? The, the, the successful person who has resilience, they stand up, dust themselves off, and continue on, right? But the important thing in that equation is that you have to understand what knocked you down so then you don't make that same mistake again. You want to move on in a smart way. Uh, not just move on. So that's, you know, that's an important part of, uh, of resilience to me. Mm -hmm. And we, I think we've talked about all of the, the, the different values you have for this project. I think it's a wonderful list of, of important values that you all are exploring. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking. Oh, to you're us. welcome. You're welcome. My pleasure. Wow. That was a great interview. 
What did you think about it, Eli? I thought it was an amazing interview. Listening to him talk about what he did for the CIA and what type of service he did really made me think about what I can do later in my life. Yeah. An interesting thing that I thought was really cool is how he directed the operation to smuggle those Ethiopian people back to Israel, back to their home country. That really was a true act of bravery and courage. I agree. It takes a special kind of person to risk their safety just to help a group of people in need. I also thought it was really cool how he caught that CIA spy that was working for the Russians, although he didn't really tell us much about how he caught him. I remember when he talked to us about that. It really must have been a stressful situation trying to handle such a sensitive thing. Yeah. Another thing I thought was really cool as well was how he managed and pioneered the UAV program. He was sent all around the world in less than 24 hours and went into certain countries before even the military got information. He also told us that his whole team could fit into one plane. It really showed how tight-knit and efficient the nature of the operation was. That was really cool. I do wonder what happened on those chief station assignments, though, because he did not give us many details about them, although he did tell us how he was stationed in Morocco and Sudan. He also told us he was situated in Japan, which I thought was pretty cool. What impact do you think he had on these missions? Well, I can only think he organized all those things like he told us, but he never really could tell us what exactly he did in specifics because it had to remain a secret. Yeah. Talking to him, though, he sounded like an extremely accomplished person who had done a ton of things throughout his life. I liked hearing about the advice he gave us as well about trying to give some type of service in our life, whether it's for the military or the community. I agree. I feel like this interview really impacted me because he was a really nice and a really informational guy to talk to. Remember how he told us how he wanted to be a commercial pilot? Yeah, but then he ended up wanting to join the CIA because he didn't want to wait all those years to become a commercial pilot. Yeah, I always, I also thought it was pretty cool how he went to Navy pilot school and got his bachelor's degree at the same time. Yeah, the amount of effort you have to do to do that, those two things at the same time. So much service and dedication. I feel like he was always doing something in his life. He was always trying to better himself in some way. Yeah, he told us that he always wanted to be doing service for the United States or just for people. And he really is just a great man for the service he has done for this country and all around the world. I agree. It that was interview an- was truly amazing. I wish I could have an interview that was that good again. I agree. It was a privilege to interview a great man like him. Thanks for listening to the Operation Press Podcast. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and share. Today's hosts were Rohan and Eli, and our guest was Mr. Alan Platt. The questions were written by us, and the editing was done by our teachers. Until next time, see you.